This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven to you. Robbery homicides take me. Give me all you got! Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. Trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me via Skype is the dulcet and delicious Scottish tones of one of my favourite film writers. You'll see him freelancing all over the place, Mr. Stephen Russell. Hello, sir. Hello, Blake. It's a pleasure to be cyber on the line. Oh, (laughs) thank you. Look, and thank you so much for coming and being a part of One Heat Minute. And uh, I want to kick off before we even get, because we're right now, we're at episode 50, with the 50th minute of One Heat Minute. There's only... only there's less than 120 to go. <laughs> <laughs> Look, 50 feels like a, you know, it feels like a momentous number nonetheless. It is. It's pretty momentous. So thank you for being a part of it. But one of the things I wanted to talk to you about real quick before we jump into the minute is this is one of your first rewatches of Heat since decades ago of watching it. Yeah, it's really, really funny, Blake. I, th- I think I think the biggest wow moment was seeing baby Natalie Portman. I was like, yes. oh my goodness, this was a while ago? <laughs> yes, her second movie ever, ever. Yeah, wow. And yeah. I'm like, is, is that her? And I'm, I'm, I'm like literally focusing on the mole going, it's definitely Natalie Portman. Yeah. I am, yes. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't know why. I remember being wowed by this at the time. So it's kind of strange, but I guess, I guess for for folks our age, you know, there there really was that element where you either you, you could buy it on VHS and then cane it, but if you didn't, then there's a there's a bit of a lull before we got to yeah. easily being able to reaccess films. So, and it's really funny because like it feels like VHS happened really close, you know, sort of nineteen ninety six ish that you know yeah. ninety six ninety seven early ninety seven, and then the real DVD boom didn't kind of happen until 2000s-ish, like and yeah. when it became prevalent everywhere. So then then the, these movies, you know, a whole bunch of, you know, I think Warner Brothers did a great job where they just started chucking their entire catalogue, you know, sort of 2000s onto DVD really, really heavily. And so then you started to get these movies coming out and people were going, oh, this is actually fantastic. And it sort of, it gets a new life with every new release. But it's so funny, like at the time that we're recording this and the time that we're talking, it's the 45th anniversary of the Godfather, so there's lots of pictures of um, pictures of De Niro and Pacino and stuff together. And you look at these guys, you know, these guys now in their you know in their seventies or whatever it is, or nearly eighties or something like that. You look at them, and you're like, man, that it, it, it's so harsh that life is doing it to these guys because I I am perennially seeing them at their like their peak all the time. These guys at their like peak of their age. So now I'm just watching them over and over again. Uh, in a bunch of these uh, wonderful interviews that they've been getting for this 45th anniversary, going, God, you know, these guys, t- time's a bitch to everyone, no matter how, <laughs> no matter yeah, how much although, you look. isn't it De Niro? I, I'm sure I just read this feature about it's. Um, there's a massive De Niro retrospective in New York at the moment. Yeah, it, for the, uh, I think, I think he's 
part of the founders or, or part of the people who run Telluride. So um, yeah. because he's part of it, he then, you know, with the 45th anniversary, sort of had to go out in the campaign for the Telluride folks to say, you know, can we do the 45th anniversary of The Godfather with Coppola, with Talia Shire, with Robert Duvall, with James Calm, with Pacino. Um, and he sort of got the, the, got the Guernsey to kind of make all those phone calls and uh, twist some arms to get people along. Well, it's, it's kind of brilliant, though, because I, I was reading about, you know, there's this particular retrospective of all of his films, and he really insisted on putting some of the donkeys in as well, and I, had a, I have a lot of respect for him that, you know, he's like, you know, they might not have worked out well, they, they might not as a whole be a great film, but there's some, look at this little bit, or there's, this was really interesting, or I really got sunk into that, and, I, and I, it gives me a lot of respect for an artist that can obviously lay claim to as much ego as he likes but still is quite happy to dissect his weaker moments and what's funny is it's even in even in a lot of the heat retrospectives that happen around the 20th anniversary people sort of you have this vision of de niro that he could be the sort of perennial uh daniel day lewis artist like tell people all of his little techniques and so people are like, oh, you know, when you made this decision, when you were as Neil McCauley and Heat, you know, what were you thinking? And he goes, it's like, well, Michael put it all on the page. <laughs> you know, just, he's like, he, he wrote it all. And like, we prepared and we trained. And it's like, most of it was on the page for me to deliver. You know, we, we workshopped it. We asked the questions. I acted. I'm a professional actor and this is what I do. And so it's really funny. Sometimes he just makes yeah. it like, no, 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 I was just doing my job. Like my job is an actor. I'm really good at my job, but I wasn't, there was no magic happening right now. This is just me being a great performer. So yeah, it's, it's really, yeah, I like that. But like he has had some turkeys. You got, I, yeah. I, unless, unless you are a Daniel Day-Lewis, this is what you got to love about these actors. Like they're the first generation where you've got such longevity that you're going to do some turkeys. You have, like, I mean, it's inevitable, you know, and I mean, uh, some of De Niro's have been really oh, quite stressing. Yeah, really bad, really bad. <laughs> and, you know. and so, for folks, Stephen has um, been covering, is it the um, the Melbourne Queer uh, Film Festival? Like, and, yeah. And, and so, one of the things I'd say to you is, Heat is my movie, and both of us are, are sort of love a film festival. He was part of the critics. He was a coach at the Melbourne International Film Festival Critics Campus. And so what happens is you're watching a stack of films from a whole bunch of different countries of a whole bunch of different, you know, really most of them are super ambitious and some of them just don't come off. And so yeah. if you get a bad run of films, this is what I find. If you get a bad run of films, it completely for me anyway, it makes me go, why do I even like movies? Like, what is going on in the world? And this is why I come back to Heat perennially yeah. because you come yeah. back to your favourites and you go, oh, yeah. this is Look, why I love movies. That, that, is, that is totally fair. To be honest, Blake, I actually pride myself on being a very good prepper for festivals. So actually, although I'll have maybe one or two, I usually have a pretty good run. I feel like it's the day job that can yeah. get me Sometimes, you know, yeah. like when you're watching the 18th, just utterly forgettable, you know, bro comedy or, you know, <laughs> just, you know, you can kind of get to the point where you're like, why do I do this to myself? Yes. But yes. Then you check your privilege and go, because Stephen, you are literally getting to see something like, you know, four or five films for free a week. And a lot of families out there can barely afford to take, you know, go out for, for one, once a month. So check your privilege, quit your whining, the occasional donkey, 
is not a bad ask. No, no. <laughs> now, I've got a question. You talked about the deep respect of De Niro being able to talk about donkeys. Yeah. What, let, 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 before we talk about some, some of, one of their masterpieces and, and, and you know, the coll- their collective power, mm. what, who do you think's got a worse film on their resume? Is it Pacino or De Niro? Who's got the worst one? <laughs> Look, I think it has to be De Niro. It's got to be that. It's got to be that one. I can't even remember what it's called, but it's that that moosehead cartoon. That's got to um, be Rocky and him? Bullwinkle. Rocky and yeah, Bullwinkle. That was him, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was him. One hundred percent. Oh you're, my god! You're... I've tried to erase it from my mind. No, nah, you you are I... dead right. <laughs> the only one, and now this is the benefit of us talking on Sky. I can't. I've blocked it out of my mind, so I have to actually Google it while we're talking. It is okay. there's an Adam Sandler. Adam Sandler movie. Oh, oh, you're already losing me. You're already losing me. <laughs> and there's an Adam Sandler movie, and I'm going to look it up. And it's got... It's oh, it's sorry. where he plays identical twins. Yes! And it is called... Hold on. Where is this movie? It's called Jack and Jill from 2011. And, and the love interest for his sister is Al Pacino. Okay. And so I would argue, I would argue that you know maybe Rocky and Bullwinkle is bad, but 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 that one for me was a particularly <laughs> low a low point. And he's done some clangers, like you know he's an he's an ambitious actor. He's done plenty of films, yep. like plenty. And I think a lot of people, it, it's really funny with these two guys. Is like I feel like at their peak, you know, yeah. you sort of even come up to like let's just say 1985 as a as a year. Yeah. Anything before that, you get people raving about both of these guys careers you know with De Niro it's you know your taxi drivers and your deer hunters yeah. and your raging bulls and uh, you know it, I mean Actually, just anything my dad gave me a <laughs> yeah anything in Scor- anything Scorsese made had him in it so you had that and then you know for Pacino you've got Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon and it's just um uh, and then you sort of come um come up in Scarface and oh just phenomenal stuff but I think there is a stack of really good movies that these guys do later that not met yeah. all performances and they sort of just like, oh, no, no, no. All their good stuff was earlier. Well, you know, there's, you know, I, I love obviously Heat, Any Given Sunday with Pacino, you know, um, with uh, De Niro, he's obviously in Cape Fear a little bit later and, and, and things Which like I that. Loved a really, I feel like that's quite, it, it, probably, it probably has been rejuvenated, but I feel like it was underrated for a while. Well, Cape Fear. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah, I, 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 I think I think people do that with great filmmakers all the time. They're like, yeah. "Oh, this isn't as good as their best." And you're like, yeah. "But it's but it's, you know, it's like a, so a mid-level a mid-level Scorsese is like is better than 90% of movies out there. Like a mid-level. When he makes a when he makes a cracker, it's True. it's 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 as good as movies get. Um but yeah. Yeah. That's so it's so funny that like, you know, it's almost like that Australian, you know, obsession with the tall poppy like a, I mean I could just to jump back quickly to the the last year Sydney Film Festival I think it was last year and um you know how obviously Xavier Dolan was like the fated wonderkind and then yes. for whatever reason it still perplexes me to this to this day that people did not love and um, which I think is a five-star film and um, it's only the end of the world it's an amazing but, film and it was like that, that, that even if it was inevitable, there would be some kind of correction to just you know he can do no wrong because all, all of his films are a little you know there's there's they generally go a little too long. He doesn't quite know how to end things. Sometimes that one I actually think is one of his absolute finest. But that 
the thing that really perplexes me is that people were sort of saying, oh, you know, it's just because everyone's really shouty and it's very melodramatic. And I'm like, what? I don't understand. <laughs> Did you say <laughs> mommy? Uh, <laughs> like... What? Have you, do you have you seen his films? Why is that a problem now? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah it, give it's, people a bit credit. <laughs> yeah, it's really it's really odd, and and Michael Mann too, and I, I'm such a huge fan of his films, and I think that the same reason that people heaped adoration and love on something like Heat or Thief, people then tried to clown him on for Miami Vice, the Miami Vice remake. And it's only like, a, it takes a decade and people are like, oh, you know, actually, that movie's pretty good. And you're like, yes, uh, yes, it is. Because... You know what? I have to admit, I, I did actually miss that, not purposefully, but I did. No, so, a... But in, in your honor, I will, I will check it out for Look, you. For sure. <laughs> Look, guys, we're going to jump into this minute. We went on some massive digressions there, but that's yeah. the fun of one heat minute. So we are now, if you're watching, just as a reminder, this is not the... Uh, not the newly released Fox Entertainment definitive edition of Heat, um, which has had some tweaks to color grading and a couple of extended scenes. It's nothing majorly different, but I'm watching the Warner Brothers theatrical release. So if you're watching, it is literally at 49 minutes and zero seconds. If you are queued up to watch it with Stephen and I, you're seeing Al Pacino, Vincent Hanna's face. He's on the phone to his team, um, Schwartz, Casals, Drucker, Bosco. They're all sitting in the office taking instructions about where to go to next. We're going to have a watch of it together, and then we're going to come back and chat about it with you guys. Day and night, we never close open seven days a week. But the car, the house, the works, when he moves or sits, like in a restaurant, I want pictures of who he moves and sits with. Then you guys run makes on them. They got jackets. I want to see who they move and they sit with. I want it up and running by tomorrow night. Well, there you have it. Guys, I'm going to reveal something behind the curtain is that Stephen and I were chatting before this minute and he goes, God damn it, Blake. You gave me a minute and just before some awesome gunfighting. I know. I feel like, do you know what? No, I did. I did correct that. That was my sort of immediate response was, damn you. If you'd given me like <laughs> minute, you know, 51 or 52, it'd all be going off. However... And I reeled my head in and I thought, well, well, actually what this is doing is it's a really, it's, I mean, there's, it's a really important bridge scene. It, you, first of all, you've got um, Hannah finally getting a bit of a lead and, and acting on it and, and sort of rallying the troops. And, yes. and that's, it's a nice bit of snappy man dialogue there, you know, great performance with Gino. But then what I, you've actually got... Well, before I jump into that bit, I was yeah. just going to say, what I love is it's snappy from Pacino, but what I love is 
each of the different four guys in this scene yep. do some really terrific reacting to his stuff. I, one of my favorite character actors of all time is Ted Levine. And so most people, you would know Ted Levine famously or infamously possibly from Silence of the Lambs. He's a terrific character actor. And in this moment, Hannah's like firing off instructions. Yeah. This is what needs yeah. to happen. And what's phenomenal is you sort of get into it's about, it's like, four, it's sort of 49 minutes, sort of 10 seconds. You start to see... Um, you start to see the guys doing stuff based on his instructions. The cool thing is, and, and I'll just sort of, actually, I'll just pause at 49 minutes, two seconds. Really got, nice shot. You've got Michael T. Williams, um, Bubba from Forrest Gump. I've actually got a great story that um, is about that. He's, he's right in the center of this shot um, uh, taking notes. You've got um, Jerry Trimble, who plays Schwartz, on the right-hand side. He's, he's sort of listening over. And also Casals, which is played by the wonderful Wes Studio in the middle, taking notes. But as Vincent's firing this off, Bosco's not even waiting for the conversation to end. He's picking up a phone and starting to dial a number because he's already, you know, he's taken one part of that conversation. They haven't even, you know, this, they work so innately together. He's like, I, I know what he wants me to do. I'm going to start doing it. I love this little bit of business here of, of all these guys doing a different thing. Yeah, like the performances, and that's what jumped out at me. But in your your exact pause there, what I'm loving is that then we're we're seeing a little bit of the magic behind dialogue and performance. You know, you've got some incredible framing there. Yes, it, that, I mean that that's your kind of classic art pyramidal structure. You know, you've got the four <laughs> guys and in pretty much perfect triangle. You've also got little echoes of that triangle and in, in the, the the sort of lighting rigs behind them yes yeah it's a beautiful shot which you would never you would never see that's like one second you know yeah one one second of a reaction shot on a phone call and they and he, and he picks it up <laughs> and they and they get it and they start working on it oh look at that bosco's first name is mike According to his nameplate, I've never noticed that before. This is yeah, this really see we're, we're getting revelation here. From revelation, if, if, if there it is, Mike Bosco. Holy shamali! I could probably even read out his uh, his, his exact uh, uh, yeah. thing there, but um, so yeah. No, we kick off this minute. I'll let you go back into the the next building scene because I think it's so important. Look, th this is where when you know I, I was I sort of as I said I checked myself because actually what this is is a little masterclass in in ominous tension, and it's also a, it's a really it just kind of it's a little capsule of the film really and and then a lot of what Michael Mann does and he sets up a spark and then he will make you feel the dread of what's coming inexorably and 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 it's it's an incredible combination of music image and suggestion and actually watching this next bit again Blake what happens um there's been a you know a a, a, a pickup arranged and they're on to it um so what you see is this you know the white ute with the package roll into a, a really desolate broken gray ashen i mean it look it kind of looks like it sort of looks like you know that shot in terminator 2 after i was LA. just gonna say you was just saying it's that it's, ter it's yeah. that terminator 2 la it's like totally what would happen to a drive-in after a nuclear holocaust that's exactly yeah, what it looks totally. like and, and and it made me like it was so weird what i love that you just said nuclear holocaust because watching it again and i'm literally getting goosebumps this shot of this this terrible like there's literally a, a, there is that little 
bit in the back of your spine that tells you survival instinct tells you you would never go to this no. building in the and, middle of this place and what's even more frightening is that even just the color so yeah, the, the, it's this ashen thing this white you yep. fits in with this desolation in as far as yep. the color and this dark you uh, this dark car with a guy yeah. with dark features and dark sunglasses on in the car, yeah. which we see later. And I, I get, I feel you. It's like my, the pit of my stomach is sinking going, there's nothing is right about this. Nothing no, is I... right from the second. And it's that great compliment, right? So we, we talk about man's ability to create this tension, but earlier on in the film, so at the beginning of heat, you know, sort of up to the first, about the 11th minute is where they kick off the first famous heist um, at the beginning that sort of triggers all of the action in the film. And, at that moment, he, he's he's got he's moving a lot of bodies. We're we're in this sort of perpetual motion. We're building tension. We we're not quite sure something's going to happen. What's amazing about this scene is after you've seen that high scene, yeah. the minute you see the car, and the yeah. minute you even frame this desolateness, you're like, "There's a trap." It's you don't know awesome. whether it's a trap for the villains that the, the, they're ensnaring for themselves, or you don't. Yeah. You're like, "But there's something bad is going to happen." Um, and right this second, if you're playing along at home. It's 49 minutes, 42 seconds. There's just yep. this divine sort of, it's like I, a, I, oh, yeah. I, it's a, it's like a well, vista of death. <laughs> it's, it's, well, it's funny. I want to, it's, well, what just suddenly sprung out to me, Blake, is literally looking at that. And as you said, it's like a dry drive in after a Holocaust. So what it immediately weirdly associated with in my head, obviously after the fact is I immediately thought, got a light. Like, it, it, it looked, it suddenly there's this Lynchian nightmare, yes. you know, <laughs> do not want to go there under any circumstances. No. It's, it's so funny. Uh, like, uh, I've, we, we come out of the minute with Pacino and I just want to, um, uh, I was doing a bit of research because I couldn't find it. The, the bar, so right at the beginning of that bar scene where we see, um, you know, Hannah finally cotton onto this lead, this slick, yeah. finds out about Michael Torito. Um, they filmed the outside of that place at Koreatown uh, in, in, in Los Angeles, and he goes up to an albino doorman who, in fact, actually owned the pit bull fighting rink we saw at the beginning of the, <laughs> at the, beginning of the film. Um, it, it also was an illegal abattoir as well in Wilmington in Los Angeles. So, of Michael, course. of course, of course you're going to get the albino guy who runs an illegal abattoir to be a, a co-star of the movie. Um, the actual club itself was a real nightclub in LA called PJ's, which was an, and, and, and a couple of minutes ago, if you were listening along, um, in order, sometimes these aren't recorded in order. Um, so you guys might, might, uh, hear things in different orders, but, um, Travis Johnson, who was on the show, um, a writer, he was, we were talking about where this club was and it's in PJ's. It was underneath a Payless shoes store in a basement in LA. So, that. so he, he, he's there, and the reason I sort of bring it into this moment is because Michael Mann's uh, uh, Michael Mann he's got a location manager named Janice Pauly, but Michael Mann spent five to six months in LA every Friday and Saturday night um, out with a, a, a sort of um, a, a specialist advisor from the LAPD, just picking up random radio calls to find every nook and cranny in LA. And so, you know, a PJ's an underground, you know, Payless Shoes nightclub, or in Wilmington, um, um, a, you know, a pit bull fighting rink. But this is the this famous drive-in um, is is uh, 
him finding this place finally, you know, in, in all of Los Angeles and all what we've come to associate with it, there are these places that have been run down and they're just sort of existing yeah. and decaying in this, in, in, in a broader, what should be thriving Los Angeles. Yeah. It's so weird. I mean, I was trying to think of other places where this happens and the only one I can really think of is Berlin, but obviously Berlin has, well, you can argue it has a reason, but it's <laughs> a long way on from 1945. So yes. it's kind of, it still is strange that you can walk to areas of Berlin that are just kind of rubble. And, yeah. and it's brilliant. I mean, that's part of how that developed. But how, LA isn't even that old. Why, is, why, are, why are there these forgotten, abandoned, derelict places? But I, it's, I, I just think know, it's wherever, wherever the... Um... It's, I don't know, there, there are weird cities. And I think that, um, you know, Stephen's from Melbourne. I'm from Sydney. And Sydney and Melbourne, particularly in Melbourne, um, there seems to be a really great um, way of using old structures, old buildings, old things, and refreshing and building onto them. So you want to keep some of the flavor of that past. You want to refresh it. You know, you might see an old warehouse that on the outside looks like it did in 19 you know you know 1970 but on the inside it's all beautiful and modern um and i I think with la it might suffer the same thing that brisbane does which is every 20 years it just gets knocked down and rebuilt maybe and it's something that has happened to glasgow on occasion as well and 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 so and but it's also this this great thing what sucks is that you, yeah. You're also watching this like little microcosm of the death of cinema behind us. You know, <laughs> like it's like the death of people going to watch movies um, is writ large in a drive-in that's like abandoned and overgrown and falling down. So it's it's kind of this sad little moment. And and for all the pushback on on gentrification, if if we're looking at this shot now, I, I don't think there's going to be anyone arguing for this being preserved as. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, guys, please preserve it. It's it's where it's yeah. it's where Val Kilmer was hiding. Um, so yeah, there's there's this sort of great scene and it's building up and. I, I, it's also there's like the the feeling of those sort of concentric circles, you know, like you're yeah, looking at a, a cross section of dirt. The blast, blast radius of you know nuclear. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and the truck's navigating through and it just sort of makes its way around yeah. this thing and also it's um the, there's one thing i really like about michael mann movies is that he doesn't ever feel like he slows anything down because the audience might not get it and i think that right here you know i've watched this movie an, an innumerable amount of times um but there's you know, that package is so writ large that you know, like you know there's a handover and yeah. you can make an assumption immediately. It's right in the foreground every time you see this big Dodge truck come up. There's a package in the front and it's it's a signal. And I think that um, even in a weird way, I guess this the people who are doing this handover are, are also sort of semi-cotton onto the fact that they need to signal that this is what they're there for because these people might not be mucking around. Um, so you sort of get that package right up the front and it sidles up ever so lovely next to this. Uh, well, it's sort, it's sort of a MacGuffin anyway, isn't it? It's kind of yeah. like it, you know, it's it's there to to, ha- to to spark the the action. But I also love, even though it's a drop off, like there's still something predatory about that shot. It feels like a vulture circling, you know, a carcass. Yeah. Yes. There's, there's like the way he does that, the way it tracks the whole way round. It's it's a great it's a great little moment of of tension and, raising. And also, it doesn't. You're right. It doesn't feel right, because what's stopping a direct? What's like, why, stopping why, the? Why is he circling it? Yeah, I mean, it, 
There shouldn't be a reason. There's, but... just, there's no reason why that needs to be circling because, you know, other than dodging the old uh, former sort of speaker stands, you know, um, you know, you don't you don't need to do anything. You just drive straight straight to the car, so you immediately get that there's oh there's going to be something, there's going to be something going down here. And of course, massive, massive props to El- Elliot Goldenthal here because you oh, know the the, the, the ominous um, strings are you know they're they're really ramping it you know you know you know we you, we know we're building to something here. Yeah, I I think what's great about the Ed- Elliot Goldenthal score is that sometimes it sort of starts in like it's like the plane of drone, like it's happening in an almost it's yeah, like a barely yeah. audible, and then it starts to come up, and what you realise is that it's been happening the whole time, and so yeah. that he has plenty of those scenes in this, and then there are big flurries and 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 splashes of um splashes of score as they happen. But I love it's just about the the flow and the tempo to get to that. So you pretty much stop, and we know that the truck is gonna. We we pretty much come to the end of this minute, and we we stop. We stop right on this minute. Devastatingly, yeah. right, very close. It's it's good, you know. I mean, it made me realize actually. I was checking out what other films Goldenthal had done again. Um, and it really reminded me of um, Alien Three and Pet Cemetery. Actually, he's quite Pet good at Cemetery. the old oh, I didn't, working I... menace. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And Alien Three too. Both got those um, very industrial. Lots of dudes. You know, the same yeah. population of men to female. <laughs> would you say in Alien Three and Heat? Um, yeah, it'd, it'd be close. Yeah. Look, we won't we won't bring up his absolute. Well, actually, you know what? I can't even remember if he did a good job or not in this film. I just. The film is close to the nadir of cinema. Um, <laughs> he is responsible for the score for Batman and Robin. I can't speak to it because I've tried to erase that from my memory. Look, that's totally <laughs> fair. But it's it, it's funny that, you know, again, <laughs> Warner Brothers right at this time. Um, so there are four editors um, that worked on Heat. Two sort of yeah. main editors being um, Pasquale Buber, who has been a guest on the show which we oh, wow. lo- we loved talking to Pat thank you so much yeah. sir if you're listening hello um, and Dove Honig Dove Honig was the editor on Batman Forever and so Dove Honig and Val Kilmer walk off the set of Batman Forever and straight yeah. into heat um, and look I'm a defender of Batman Forever I mean I feel, <laughs> I feel like Burton and Keaton and particularly laterally with the you know the, the help of DeVito and Pfeiffer created dark magic so it was a tough act to follow. Do I do I think that Batman Forever is a bad film? No, I actually like some of the anarchic energy that that um, they they bring to that one. To be yeah, honest, I, 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 it, it, it is it worked for me. Yeah, I, I'm I'm not as uh, I'm not as tough on Batman Forever in the post Nolan Batman world as I am on Batman and Robin. Batman and Robin's still quite egregious, that, but but Val Kilmer's a highlight. Val Kilmer's <laughs> a highlight. You know he, yeah. he he can carry the bat he can carry the Batman mantle, um a very different looking yeah. Batman than we've ever seen before a blo- a blonde you know he, it could have worked for him in his favor a la Daniel Craig with James Bond but it didn't um yeah, unfortunately no, didn't no. have the full the full I, I oh god this is, again we're off on a massive tangent but I'll keep it really quick but yeah I, lo- I loved how everyone was so furious about Daniel Craig being blonde and blue eyed. Until he came out in the Ursula Andress tiny, <laughs> tiny, tiny blue shorts. And then just forgot. Yeah. Oh, totally. We're really into this. Yeah. Put comes back in, boys and girls. We know what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> 
Look, yeah. um, it, he he definitely caused um, he definitely caused many men, including myself, to raise the <laughs> the, the height level of our pant legs shorts for for future swimming trips. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, like it's so I always find that so weird about how you get into a headspace and something you know someone at that time like Kilmer, you look at him yeah. at that time and he's off, he's out of the doors and he's just firing on all cylinders. Um, you know, he's in top secret came started as a, as a purely comic actor comes into a lot of these sort of intense dramatic roles and very method, um, uh, in his approach and, you know, jumps out of a big popcorn, ridiculous Batman movie into heat as Christian Hill as this sort of, you know, dark, um, uh, you know, dark, really realistic portrayal of a thief who also um, has one of the best reloads of a magazine in uh, on an assault rifle in the history of cinema, so much so that Marines show their, their, their recruits. The have, you, have you got a scale here, Blake? Yeah, like, no, there's, it's funny cause, because um, there are Marines, uh, and in my research for this podcast, I often go down, speaking of going down rabbit holes, I go down rabbit holes, and there are like army uh, drill sergeants and marines and trainers and stuff who show how he changes their magazine in the movie and then go, you need to be able to, like he was trained. You need to be able to train, change your magazine like he changes his magazine. It's crazy. Like, uh, um, but yeah, they, so... They sure love their guns in this film, that's for sure. They do. They <laughs> do. But they, I, I actually, you know, we're at a really interesting time, um, uh, especially with the... Oh, just the recent swathe of shootings in America, and I know that seems like a yeah. an oxymoron because it's something that happens quite a lot. But I actually yeah. think the guns frighten me in this movie a lot. Oh, like, I don't I, think. I, I, yeah, I, I mean, I was saying to you that that, that that two hour, you know, to jump ahead very briefly, that that two hour shot. I mean, there was the part it terrorized me that the idea that I mean, I'm not even sure whether it would happen or not. I was trying to question whether police would initiate an assault rifle battle in the heart of LA with like literally hundreds of civilians around. It was, it, you know, part of me was laughing. I don't know whether it was like that panic <laughs> laugh or not, but yeah. you know, it's, there's some full on stuff in here. And again, this, this little moment feels like a precursor of that big wide gun battle. It's like every time it happens, it's the, 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 the canvas is just getting stretched a little bigger. And, and with these guys here, if it's not if it's not clear, you know, in, in the opening heist, they're all got assault rifles. They they look like they're tactical, you know, very extremely tactical in the way they approach stuff. And here it's like again, it's another layer of that. You know, you see, um, you see uh, De Niro in, in the sort of forthcoming moment. You see De Niro's Neil McCauley. You know, his aptitude driving along, shooting through a windscreen. You see. Yeah. You see Shehalis, you know Val Kilmer, like firing off an assault rifle, and then you know Tom Sizemore's um, Michael Torito is just like bang, 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 firing off like a crazy firing off with like a double barrel twelve gauge shotgun. It's like these guys do not mess about. No wonder they wanted to be in this desolate area that was abandoned because they're willing to go to gun violence and very quickly. So here's a question, Blake, I guess, with all of that bigger debate right now, and this might be a total tangent again, but I I guess this is a recurring conversation. You know, first, uh, two-pronged. Do you think this film fetishizes guns or is it showing them as a not good thing? And what what, what are the bigger ramifications of movies with this kind of gun violence? Do, Do we, is it... Yeah, what's your sort of take on it? I'm intrigued because, you know, going back to this, it it did kind of bring into my head all of what's going on right now. It's that weird line thing, I think, Stephen. I think it's like um, 
Michael Mann was so insistent on their their aptitude that mm. sometimes I think people naturally, and it happens in a lot of movies, but people naturally fetishize people who are good at their jobs. You know, whatever yeah. their job is, if they're a cop, if they're a crook, um, if they're a doctor, if you're watching the procedural shows, you know, shows like House exist because, you know, even though he's an absolute terrible person, he's very good at his job. And so I think that there's that weird line of you could absolutely argue that it does fetishize in some way because of just the aptitude with which they go ahead. Um, mm. But I, I, my 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 uh, always devil's advocate but yeah. would be... Name me another film that makes gunfights sound because I think that's one thing yeah. that so many films miss or dismiss completely is that, yeah. you know, the sound of a top, like, I know this is even more random, but like the sound of a, like a lion roaring close to you or a tiger or a bear, there's something yeah. instinctual that like can almost well, cripple that- you. Like you, you, you just like, you just drop to the ground. Like, okay, I'm going to be food now. I'm dead. Like I'm going to die. And I think yeah. that that's what heat does to me every time when I watch these gunfights is it terrifies you. Like it shakes yeah. you. There's none of this like um, slow-mo diving through the air with two pistols. Gah, 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 gah. Like yeah. I look awesome. It's, and it's look, that, That's kind of how I, I mean, first of all, I'm, I'm not for censorship and gun violence happens and this stuff happens. So yes. I think it's fair play to depict it. Uh, what does annoy me is too much, of, as you sort of presented there, superhuman stuff. Like, if, if you're going to go to gun violence, you have to make the reality of that horror really visceral. You, yeah. I, I actually think that it's incumbent on filmmakers to, to yeah, make it horrifying, terrifying. And, you know, you haven't, you haven't seen the film, and I'm not really spoiling anything here if, if anyone um, ha- hasn't, has um, seen Miami Vice because it, this is the very beginning of the film. But there's a shot in Miami Vice where um, someone, uh, an, an undercover resource, is found out in the middle of a handover, mm. and they rush back to their car, and the people who find them out have a sniper with, like, an elephant rifle. And there's a sort of slow-motion scene of um, you see this guy taking the shots, the, the, the sniper sort of taking these shots, and there's an interior scene that's shot in a car that is also complemented, was like practically shot, but they also use some digital effects as well to, to show the carnage of what happens to a body when it got hit by those bullets. And I yeah. think that Michael Mann, like, in a movie that is, you know, you know hyper-stylized and, but also very realistic, like Miami Vice and in Heat too, they both sort of share that same great, borderline between gorgeous aesthetic weird you know ashen nuclear holocaust settings etc um and and hyper realism um you know i i'm i'm i think if you treat it the more seriously you treat it um um, violence can mean things and i think you know you you look at great movies where they use violence and violence is scary Uh, i don't think that those things are propagating any kind of you know i don't think they're stoking the fires of violence i think it's much worse to see that like it's the difference between desperado and heat, you know. Yeah. No one's ever yeah. looked hotter, more attractive ever than Antonio Banderas in Desperado, like flinging around guns, doing front flips over bars. Like no man has ever wanted to look that good in their life, and he's doing it like that. And I think that kind of stuff has got way more of a an, an ambivalent sort of relationship with gun violence than something yeah. like that. And and look, I really I like, although on some level, you know, heat's. Um, it's kind of like the the you know uh, there, there is something else going on there and the complexity of it's not quite 
the white knight and the you know the evil lord or whatever you know there's they they try in their own way to put complexity into the place as well and if anything that's probably my one beef with the ending is i think it's it gets a little too locked into that narrative whereas i, I would have liked to have seen either a mutual destruction or even you know what um i don't know if i'm spoiling things here but um i think it's safe to say yeah if anyone is listening <laughs> if anyone is if anyone's 50 episodes into this show <laughs> they may have seen the end and if you yeah. haven't i really i'm encouraging you i don't think it loses any luster if you if, if you're hearing this well, here's the thing. They put so much into sort of asking the question is how different are these men? Are they actually destructively obsessive at the cost of all that they love around them? Are they capable of turning that around? Can they bring it back? And so for me, I think to then lock into the good guy gets the bad guy is probably where I have a little beef with, with how it ends up. Well, I would have liked I've, I have avoided, I've avoided so much talking about the ending along the way, but I'll just give you a morsel is that I, I conversely have a different experience because I think, um, and I'll talk about it in a popcorn, in a, in a popcorn movie, which is, um, it happened in the force awakens. A lot of people read the sort of Kylo Ren kills his father, you know, Ben Solo kills Han Solo moment. Um, you know, I think that moment and in heat, um, there's such a profound impact on the fallout of that moment for me and, and, and about the philosophy of both of these guys that led them to this point because it's only a shadow. It's like a shadow that, that made that outcome possible. And so for me in that moment, I'm completely and utterly a blubbering mess yeah. Um, in that moment, because in that moment, I think it's like you realize your full potential. You realize your professional, like the, the, you're, you're the most perfect professional you, you could have ever been to catch this guy, this mirror image, this, this, your, your greatest foe. Um, yeah. But, but you're both, there's such a futility in that moment. And I, I can't go into it. I can't go into it, Stephen, but I'm just I know, saying. I'm, I shouldn't be telling you. I would rather have seen a Reichenbach Falls scenario where yeah. they, you know, or. And I actually do think Force Awakens has more, there's more to, to that, definitely. But yeah, I, I wanted a, either an, a, 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 a freedom giving or, or a mutual destruction. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, the, the one great character that I will talk about in Heat that gets such an, a, a beautifully ambivalent and weird ending is yeah. Chris Shahilis. Yeah. The walk away. You know, gets the sign yeah. from Ashley Judd and he's just in the wind. Um, yeah. I love that. that. There's some I, of the. I, I wanted. I want. I wanted De Niro. I mean, Pacino to give that to De Niro, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that. That now that would be more interesting. But it would just be how the extremely, you know, there's two ways that that could go. It could go Point Break, which is great. It's like he's not coming back. You know, throw the freaking mask into the ocean. Or it could go like Fast and the Furious and set up an entire franchise of mostly terrible movies forever. No, I do not not believe in the franchise. (laughs) Mostly, I do not believe in the franchise. Can we just leave a film when it's good? When a film's good, it's good. Can we just leave it? Yes. Yeah. So, look, 
guys it's a preempt for the final minute i will not do any more of that no that's okay that's okay I, it's so hard like this is the thing um i try it's it's so hard because you know it, it this scene is amplified by earlier scenes and um and you know we are we're 50 minutes it was sort of the 49th and 50th minute that we're we're seeing a chink in neil's armor like we've seen wayne grow escape and there's sort of this weird supernatural element in that that he just sort of disappears into the wind and we 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 sort of get a feeling in that moment that that's going to be a problem but it's like this tiny little thing that feels like a nothing slick 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 this actually propels the film into the whole next stanza which is us actually seeing that the cops have a chance to catch these guys and there's so much coming up um that happens out of this moment but we're 50 minutes into the film yeah. You know, in, in in other films, you know, the cops are well on the track, you know, well on the trail of the bad guys by now. And I think here there's 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 sort of there's such a desperation, and it feels like, oh, there's there's no chance it's going to happen. But it's only been forty eight hours, and they catch this this moment, this tiny bit of luck. Um, and it, I think that that's what's so amazing about it. It's like you have to talk about the before and after, and you have to talk about how it's building up. You have to. It's impossible not to. It's fine. Yeah. But yeah, look, I really, I do think this is a is a great little capsule moment of of what the film's doing and the bridge from how the good guys get where they're going to. <laughs> well, guys, I think that's a perfect end. We're going to end on the bridge to the next gunfight. Um, Stephen Russell, we'd love to have you back. And next time, I'll make sure it's as part of a gunfight for you. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, then can you just cut out our talk about gun violence in film? <laughs> yeah, so, let's take the serious so gun violence talk and let's go straight into the popcorn uh, fetishization of gun violence. Um, <laughs> gun violence! <laughs> um, no, that's, that's totally fine. That's the weird thing with Heat, right? You can sort of go, wow, this is awesome because they're so good. But um, guys, thank you so much um, for listening. Thank you so much for being a part of this crazy journey. And as I said, look, 120 minutes to go you've made it this far um why not keep listening steven thank you so much for being a part of the show over skype i appreciate it very much guys you can find steven all over the place he's bouncing um uh, so what's the best spot to find you steven is it twitter is probably the best find so i reckon so s-a russell words s-a russell words at s-a russell words look what i'm going to do i'll put up um some links to uh steven's stuff on main thing but he does freelance all over the place so you'll see him around or hear him around because occasionally he's on the new hub for screen as well and abc i I do a a fortnightly movie um, gig on joy fm on sundays as well excellent excellent so we'll find all those links we'll put them up in the episode link so you can follow along um any of steven's stuff that you want to check out thank you again so guys thank you so much for listening to one heat minute i've been your host blake howard always at blake is batman oneheatminute.com is where we are and if you want to email us we've missed something we want to, you want to emphasize it it's mail at one heat minute is where you can find us thank you to garth franklin for our web design thank you to paul davies for our music and thank you guys for listening cheers <laughs>